The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are currently working our way through the 8th chapter of John And in this chapter, Yeshua is teaching in Jerusalem at the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. During the fire ceremony of this feast, Yeshua claims, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Yeshua, in making this claim, he's claiming to be the light of the glory of God. Now, the Pharisees didn't question the meaning of this statement. They were familiar with the many titles in Scripture which ascribed light to the Messiah. They knew this was a messianic claim, for they immediately called him a liar. The Jews associated light with God's presence, and Yeshua even intensified that by saying, I am the light. He is identifying himself with the significant words of I am, which reminds us of Yahweh's revelation of Himself to Moses three times in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. When Yeshua said, I am the light of the world, He is announcing His deity. He is using the tetragrammaton, the I am, and claiming to be light. Now, what's interesting in the text, the Pharisees don't ask, What do you mean by using the tetragrammaton and saying that you are the light of the world? They don't say, what are you saying? Are you claiming to be God? Are you saying you're the Messiah? They don't ask a single question. They simply say, your testimony isn't true. No, you're wrong. No information, no clarification, just say, no, you're wrong. Obviously, they're not Bereans, all right? And no matter what Yeshua did, they said the Jewish leaders would not believe in Him. He could do things, He could say things, they just were rejecting Him. But there were some people in the crowd, matter of fact, there were many people in the crowd that were listening to Him, that actually did come to believe. And the text says, as He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. Now, what's really sad here, is that due to a theological bias, many for many believers, these words don't mean what they say. The text says many came to believe in Him, but many scholars, many commentators say, no, they didn't. So who are you going to believe? The Scripture or the commentator? I mean, the Bible says many came to believe. Commenting on this verse, D.A. Carson, who I really like and I respect, but I think he's way off here. Carson says this, some believe in Jesus, because the text does say that. Now, whether or not their faith is genuine cannot be determined by the linguistic expression selected by the evangelist. Yes, it can, because the, the, the expression, the linguistic expression he used is the same one he uses all through the gospel to tell how people come to faith in Christ. If you believe you have eternal life, it's the same thing he always uses. If the Bible says they believed, I think that's what happened. Because it doesn't say they pretended to believe. It doesn't say they acted like they believed. It doesn't add any of those things. John Piper writes this. 
Now the question is, did Jesus treat this belief as genuine? We've seen before that there is a kind of belief in this gospel that is not real. That is false. There is not a belief that is not real. There's no unreal belief. Now what is different is the object of your faith, the object you believe in, and here the object they believed in was Him. That's a saving faith. There's no faith that's not real. These people believed Him. And to believe Christ is to have salvation. Stephen Cole writes this, The dialogue in our text follows John 8, 30 and 31, where we saw that although many professed faith in Christ, now see, he doesn't say they believe, but they did. The Bible says they professed faith. It was not genuine saving faith. Now, how does he know that? Well, he says, this is first seen in 8.33. He says, the reason we know it's not genuine is because what happens in 8.33, where it becomes clear that these believers were trusting their Jewish lineage for the right standing with God. Now, there's all kinds of problems with what he says here. First of all, he says that he calls them believers. These believers were trusting their Jewish lineage. If they're trusting their Jewish lineage, they're not believers. But the problem is the text doesn't say they're trusting their Jewish lineage. It says they believed in Him. Why is that so difficult? It's because we have a theological bias. And it the, the problem comes when we get to verse 33, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All right? Earlier in this text, Yeshua said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 30 says, many came to believe in Him. So guess what? They're not going to die in their sins because they came to believe in Him. Now, 30 kind of ends a section. And then 831 through 59 is the final dialogue in a series of dialogues built around the Feast of Tabernacles from John 7 and 8. And the focal point of this dialogue is on who is Yeshua's father, and more specifically, who is the Jew's father. As this section unfolds, the crowd becomes increasingly hostile and defensive. They claim that Abraham is their father in verse 33 and 39. On the other hand, they claim God is their father in verse 41. They accuse Yeshua of being both demon-possessed and a Samaritan. You know people are losing a debate when they start calling names. You're losing, so I gotta, you're a Samaritan. You know, and Yeshua said, I know you are, but what am I? You know, no, I mean, this is not ten year olds here, but that's what they're acting like, okay? They lash out at him over and over. They say he's less than 50 years old, but he claims to have seen Abraham. Verse 57. The final expression of their anger comes in 59 as they take up stones. Okay, now they've insulted him, now they're going to try to kill him. Because they don't like what he's saying. So the last section ends with the statement, many came to believe in him. And now Yeshua addresses those who came to believe in him. And he says, so Yeshua was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. So he's addressing the people who are believers specifically speaking to them, and he says they can be his disciples. Now, verses 31 and 32 are not addressed to the crowd at large. They're not addressed to the religious leaders, the Pharisees or Sadducees. They're specifically addressed to those who had come to faith. 
He is telling the believers to become disciples. Now please listen to me. This I'm asking you here to be a Berean. I'm asking you not to believe what I'm saying. I'm asking you to take this information and study it out for yourself and see what you come up with. But it's my understanding that believer and disciple are different. Two different terms describing two different groups of people in relation to Yeshua. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the Gospel. At that moment, they're pl- it's not a process. This is instantaneous. They're placed in the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're as sure of heaven as if they're already there because they're in Christ. Now, the Scriptures make it quite clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is costly. See, salvation is our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education or maturity into the Christian life. And we have many, many people in this country today claiming to be Christians who don't follow the Lord at all. They're not a disciple. They may be a Christian. They may not be a Christian. They may be religious. But there are true believers, people who have trusted Christ, but they are not following. They have not become a disciple. And he's telling these followers of he's telling these who have believed to follow him now the word translated here continue is from the greek mano it means to remain it means to dwell to abide last time we looked at this i gave you a beasley murray's um, definition here i want to give it to you again because i think it's really good he says mano signifies a settled determination to live in the word of christ and buy it now, you spend time in it, you live by what you read, and so entails a perpetual listening to it, reflecting on it, holding fast to it, carrying out its bidding. That's what it means to abide. And when you abide in His Word, when you're dwelling in it, when you're following it, He says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, this freedom that it's talking about here, and this truth that you'll know, is talking about spiritual truth. Do you understand that? It doesn't mean that, you know, if I get in the Word of God and dig in the Word, I'm going to know all truth. It doesn't mean you're going to understand whether the earth is flat or it's a globe. No, it's not talking about that kind of stuff. Alright? It's referring to spiritual truth. And the more time you spend abiding in the Word of God, the more you will know the truth and it will set you free. Because truth is absolutely freeing. As you come to understand things like the sovereignty of God, what a freeing doctrine, you know, for the Christian to know that his father's in control of every event that happens in time. That's a freeing doctrine. It sets us free. Well, Judaism believed that the truth was the law, and the law would set you free. They taught the study of the law makes a man free. But Yeshua is saying, no, it's his word, not the law. That sets people free. Now at this point, alright, there's a whole crowd. He's standing in the temple. He's in the court of the women. He's teaching this group. He address, he understands that many come to believe in him because he knows that stuff. Alright, so he addresses those specific people. Here's what I want you to understand. I want you to move on to be my disciple. I want you to follow me. I want you to abide in my word. Well, the whole crowd standing there hearing this. And at this point, the Lord's enemies come unglued at what they hear. So they respond in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say we'll be made free? Now, very, very important here is who are the they? See, many assume the antecedent to be those who believed. And so those who believed are all of a sudden saying, what do you mean? They're not saying that. I think this refers to the unbelieving crowd that's listening to them. The antecedent goes back to verse 25, back to verse 27. And it's not the believers. See, there's both believers in this crowd and there's unbelievers in this crowd. And Yeshua speak the words of 31 and 32 to those who are believers, but the unbelievers in the crowd interrupt them because they don't like what he just said. And so they call him out on this. Now, Craig S. Keener writes this. He says, the vehemence, vehemence <laughs> that Jesus' promise of 832 provokes in 833 suggests ancient cultural assumptions unfamiliar to most modern readers. He says, these guys got upset, and maybe if you don't understand it, it's because you don't understand the culture. Jesus' hearers find implicit in his promise a statement of their spiritual inadequacy. See, when Yeshua said, those who abide in his word will be set free, they took this to imply that he is saying they are not presently free spiritually. So they respond, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. So they're saying, we're the elect covenant people of God. We've got the law. We've got the prophets. We've got the covenant. It's all ours. We belong to God because we're the seed of Abraham. And they banked on their physical descent from Abraham as their protection. One rabbi put it this way. This is how strong they were on this concept. Abraham himself sits beside the gates of hell and does not permit any wicked Israelite to enter. Okay? Hey, you're a Jew, you're safe! Abraham's there guarding. Nope, you can't get that one. Some of the rabbis taught that if you were so messed up that God had to send you to hell, that there was an angel at the gates that would remove your circumcision before you went in. Because no circumcised person could go. And I mean, that's how serious they were about it. Now, the early church father, Justin Martyr, was arguing with the Jewish man in what they called the dialogue trofo. And the Jewish man said this, They who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. As long as you're a descendant of Abraham, that's all that matters. Now listen, Yeshua had just said to this crowd, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. And where I'm going, you cannot come. The rabbi said that all Jews go to heaven, but Yeshua said, where I'm going, heaven, you can't come. Now let me ask you something. They're saying we are the descendants of Abraham. Were these hostile Jewish leaders really Abraham's descendants? Hmm? Physically, physically they were. Right. Okay, that's the thing. Most people don't make that distinction. Physically, these were Abraham's descendants. But spiritually, no. Now in 837, Yeshua acknowledges that they were Abraham's descendants. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. He says that. So yes, they were. But they were not Abraham's descendants spiritually. They claim kinship with Abraham on the basis of their privileged position. 
and they were confused. Now the word descendants here is the Greek word sperma, which means the seed or the offspring. Now, so they're saying we are Abraham's seed. You see the irony here? Who are they talking to? They're talking to Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham, and they're claiming to be Abraham's seed to the only person who is truly Abraham's seed. Notice what Paul writes in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And see, they would take that and say, all the descendants of Abraham inherit the promise. But Paul goes on to explain. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. Now what promise he's talking about here? This is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. And the promises Yahweh made to Abraham. Now as to the promises given to Abraham, the Jewish leaders would argue that they were given only to Israel since they were the the seed or the descendants of Abraham. They're saying those are our promises. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says the promises were given to Abraham and his seed. The Hebrew word used in Genesis 15 for seed or offspring is Zerah, which is a collective singular that can refer either to one descendant or many descendants. An English collective singular, for example, would be sheep. All right, you can refer to one sheep or many sheep. Paul explained that the seed God had in mind in Genesis 13, 15, 17, 8 was one descendant, and that was Christ. The apostle calls particular attention to the word seed and distinguishes it from seeds, and that singular seed that God had in mind was Christ, not all blood descendants of Abraham. The promise was to Abraham and to Christ. Now, why does Paul qualify the word seed here? Well, one reason is that the word seed in the Greek can be used the same way we would use it in English. You know, if you go to the store and you buy seed for your garden, you're probably not talking about one seed, right? You're talking about a package of seed, most likely. But however, if you were going to go to the store and you were going to buy one seed, you had just one seed you were going to buy, you'd probably make that distinction. That's what Paul's doing here. I want to make a distinction. It's not plural. When he says the promise were given to Abraham and his seed, he's making that distinction. It's a very special kind of seed or descendant that would be found in that person. It is Christ and Christ alone. Now, we have to realize that Paul's definition of seed contradicts the Jewish nationalistic interpretation of this term. When they read the promises to Abraham, they saw descendants, they saw the word seed, they said, that's us. They didn't understand this. They were convinced that term was referring to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. Therefore, they believed it was absolutely necessary to belong to the Jewish nation in order to receive the promises of Abraham. But let me tell you what I see Paul saying here in this verse. Paul is saying that the primary recipients of the Abrahamic covenant are Abraham and Christ. Now, here's what's really cool. This, of course, includes all who are in Christ. Right? Believers. The promise is not realized in the Jews, but it is realized in all believers. Because the Abrahamic promises were to Abraham and his seed. And guess what? We are in the seed by faith in Christ. 
the promises are ours. And if you belong to Christ, Paul said, by faith in Him, then you, Gentiles or Jews, you're Abraham's descendants, you're his seed, and you're heirs according to the promise. That's pretty exciting, people. Now, what's interesting here is both the words seed in verse 16 are sperma. But so also is the word in 29. But they change it to descendants there for some reason. And I don't know why in the same text you translate the same word different ways. But, you know, you're Abraham's seed, people. The promises are to Abraham's seed. And you're Abraham's seed. Because you're in Christ. That's an awesome concept. We belong to Christ. We're part of it. Now, let me ask you this. Apart from Paul's divine inspired commentary here, how many of us would understand this from Genesis? You read the Genesis text, would you ever get this? No, you wouldn't. But here's what we have to understand. When the New Testament authors comment on a passage from the Tanakh, they don't give us an interpretation. They give us the interpretation. Okay? The New Testament interprets the Tanakh. The Old Covenant was a veiled representation of the New Covenant. It is in the New Testament we learn that material things of that Old Covenant were types and shadows of spiritual counterparts found in the New Covenant. And we're to interpret the Tanakh through the lens of the New Testament. So we need to understand that the last 27 books of the Bible are an inspired commentary on the first 39. So the Jews thought that they were Abraham's descendants, and thus, we're secure. We got the promises. They're all ours. But they were not. The promises were only for those who were in Christ. Now, bless you. John the baptizer dealt with the Jews in this very same way that Paul does. Yeshua's dealing with them on this line. Paul does. So does John. Look what John says in Matthew 3, 7-9. through When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, So glad to have you guys of the higher authority come out. It's so nice to have you spiritual elite people with us, you know, to to just bless us with your... No, he didn't say that at all. He goes, you bunch of snakes. Who told you to run from the wrath to come? You know, I mean, John just, he laid it on the line, okay? These are the spiritual elite he's talking to, and he just says, you're a bunch of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. That's not going to work, guys. For I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So John, just like Yeshua, just like Paul, was trying to teach the Jews that physical relationships were inadequate. John put his finger right on the problem in verse 9. These Jews had been taught and had believed that every physical descendant of Abraham was going into the kingdom. Therefore, all they had to do was make sure they were part of that lineage, connected with Abraham, and they're all set. But John informed them that being a physical descendant of Abraham has nothing to do with getting into the kingdom. God could even turn stones into children of Abraham if He wanted to. John was telling them that they had no more chance than stones of getting in just because of their relationship with Abraham. So they claim to be Abraham's descendants. They think they're secure because of that. And then they say this, and have never been enslaved to anyone. you got to smile when you read that, okay? Now listen to this. Now hang on with me for a second. 
Some scholars actually suggest that Yeshua's hearers are talking about freedom here in a political sense. I don't think even the Jews were that blind. Okay? I mean, they hardly ever experience any freedom. Notice what Judges 10 says. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines. And into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted the sons of Israel. So for 18 years they were in bondage to the Philistines. Israel had been in bondage most of their existence. They were in slavery to the Egyptians. They were under captivity to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And you think they would say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. I don't know. I agree with Carson. Carson says this, it is unlikely that the objection means the Jews have never been in political subjection to anyone. That would be absurd. It really would be absurd. I'm like, we're under bondage right now to Rome. You know? So how would they say, and if they knew anything about their history, and I'm sure they did, they know they were enslaved to everybody. There was scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not served. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, Rome, all had held the Jews in political captivity. That is true. And yet they say we've never been enslaved to anyone. So I don't think they're talking about a political sphere of things here. I don't think that's the discussion. Because they've been a slave to almost every nation. And I don't think they're talking about social freedom here because the Jews had been in slavery almost as much as the Gentiles in the ancient world. They had been sold and they had been freed just like the Gentiles. They were bought and sold. So they couldn't say, we're Abraham's seed and have never been in bondage to anyone. Because they had been in bondage to many people. I think we have to see them as speaking here about religious freedom. They probably meant they had never been spiritual slaves. See, they viewed themselves as spiritually right with God because of their descent from Abraham. And so they're talking about spiritual freedom. They're claiming we're spiritually free. Now, when the Jews said that they had been no man's slaves, they were saying something which was really a fundamental article of their creed of life. See, even when they were in bondage, they maintained an independence of spirit which meant that they might be slaves in body, but never in soul. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote this of Joseph. Joseph was sold to be a bond slave, yet he was free, all radiant in the nobility of his soul. See, they just couldn't get, you know, even though he was a slave, he was free spiritually. So to even suggest that the Jews might be regarded as spiritual slaves was a deadly insult. And they knew that's what Yeshua was talking about here. And it's clear from the next verse that Yeshua is talking about spiritual slavery. Verse 34 says, Yeshua answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. He's not talking politically here. They could have never said, oh, we've never been in bondage to anyone. That would have been laughing. I mean, there's many people in the crowds, I think, would have just laughed if they had said that. So Yeshua says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is amen, amen. He doubles this term is found in only in the Gospel of John where he does this. And it appears 25 times. Um, he's using this as emphasis. He's drawing attention to this something significant that he wants to say. And here's what he tells him: Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. 
And he makes it plain here the kind of slavery he's talking about. For Yeshua, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but slavery to sin. Verse 34 states an important Johannian understanding. The one who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now the Greek participle, pio, here, commits, implies repeated, continuous action is in view. In other words, the one whose lifestyle is characterized by repeated, continuous sin, they're a slave to sin. This is a general truth that I think applies both to believers and unbelievers. People who continually commit sin become a slave to that sin. And sin tends to become habit-forming and addictive. And it holds us in power. Notice what Paul says in Romans 6. Do not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Now Paul lays down a very axiomatic principle here, and that is that we become slaves of whoever we choose to obey. Paul talks about the enslaving aspect of sin. Peter talked about this in 2 Peter 2.19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Let's be clear about it, believers. Sin enslaves. It puts you into bondage. And there are many believers today within the church who are in bondage to pornography. Because it enslaves you. You keep going back to that and it puts people in bondage. That's what sin does. The same thing with alcohol. Some people are in bondage. They, they begin and they just cannot stop. And I've seen people lose their wife, lose their house, lose their job because they can't get out of that bottle. It enslaves them. Same thing with drugs. There's an enslaving aspect of sin. It enslaves you. It's destructive. It ruins lives. Now, commenting on our text in John 8, Paul Harris writes this. He says, The particular sin the Jewish authorities repeatedly emphasize in the fourth gospel is the sin of unbelief. And I think that's what he's talking about in this text. That's their sin. He's not talking about their moral aspect here. I'm just telling you that as a principle, sin is enslaving. Whether you be a believer or an unbeliever, sin is enslaving. It leads to bondage. He says the present tense in this instance looks at the continuing refusal on the part of Jewish leaders to acknowledge who Yeshua is in spite of mounting evidence. The NET Bible adds a comment that the contextual sin in John is unbelief. It's unbelief. So the Jews are saying that they have never been slaves and Yeshua tells them, you're slaves of sin, particularly of unbelief. You're in the worst slavery possible. You're slaved by your unbelief. And now in verses 35-38, Yeshua uses the analogy of the son and the heir releasing his father's slaves from the bondage. In Egypt, the Israelites were slaves of another nation. And God promised redemption from the slavery and promised them freedom and salvation in a promised land. But what the ancestors faced was a political salvation and a political salvation. Slavery, a freedom, political freedom, political salvation. What Yeshua is promising is real freedom from the slavery of sin. He's promising real freedom, which is to be redeemed from sin 
by the blood He sheds on the cross. See, He's the only true perfect sacrifice that can be offered to purchase that freedom. He is the sacrifice that every old covenant sacrificial animal pointed to. And His salvation isn't a physical earthly one which in which they have to continue to labor. Verse 35, he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So he's just, they said, we've never been in slaves. He tells them, you're a slave of sin. You're a slave of unbelief. Let me tell you something about slaves. They don't remain in the house forever. Given the context of them thinking they're descendants of Abraham, I think this might be an allusion to Ishmael and Isaac back in Genesis 21. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. So Ishmael was a slave. Ishmael had no inheritance from Abraham. Ishmael and his mother, the slave, were sent away. And Sarah and Isaac stayed in the house. Isaac receives the inheritance. And Yeshua is saying to them, you guys think you're Abraham's son. But if you are, you are the son Ishmael. See, you got the wrong mother. You might think you got the right father, but you got the wrong mother because you are slaves. And because you're slaves, you are not heirs. Paul teaches us the meaning of this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, for it is written, quoting from Genesis, <coughs> Excuse me. Abraham had two sons. One by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman through the promise. So you got one son born according to the flesh, one by promise. And Paul says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac was the result of God's promise. Ishmael is born a slave because his mother is a slave. Isaac's born free. Because his mother was free. Now the Jews taught that your lineage was all that really mattered. They would say that the right thing, all you had to really do was make sure who was your father. But Paul's saying, i got a more important question for you. Who's your mother? See, the Jews knew that they were descendants of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. But Paul here is turning their most prized bragging right on its head by saying... You're descendants of Hagar. You're descendants of a slave woman. And you're going to be kicked out. Those who think they can enter the kingdom because Abraham is their father are in fact children of the slave woman and not free. He goes on in Galatians. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. Now he's making an allegory between these two women and the two covenants, the old and new. He's one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are enslaved. Alright, now this is, these are the Jews he's talking about. Mount Sinai. Literal Mount Sinai there. Slaves. Verse 25. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The present one he was writing. The physical, literal Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. So Paul says these women are two covenant and reveals that the two women in Genesis actually represent two covenants. So Hagar and Sarah represent old and new covenants. And the Apostles' argument is the most startling reversal in the entire history of prophecy. He says Hagar, the Egyptian bondmaid, is identified with Jerusalem. 
and Jewry. See, you guys think you're of Abraham. Well, guess what? You're of Hagar. That Jerusalem that you're all part of is bondage. But Sarah is identified with the true Jew or the church, the new covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the allegory thus declares that earthly Israel, the twelve tribes, is to be regarded as Ishmael. Because they're in bondage to the law, they're not free. The true church of Jew and Gentile, in which all distinctions of race, decree, privilege are abolished, is the true Israel to whom the promises made them Abraham apply. He says in verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So he tells them, you think you're Abraham's children, so you're free. And they say, we've never been in slavery. He goes, you are in slavery. You're in slavery to sin. And guess what? Because you're a slave, you don't have an inheritance. You're going to get cast out. The bondwoman and her son is going to be cast out. This refers to the old covenant. It refers to earthly Israel Physical Jerusalem. The dreadful judgment of these words should be unmistakable. Yahweh was about to judge Old Covenant Israel for rejecting and crucifying our Messiah. And the abolition of the Old Covenant means the abolition of physical Israel from all privileges. And the emergence of the New Testament church is the rise of the Israel of God, Jew and Gentile, with all distinctions obliterated. To whom alone? Belong to Abrahamic promises. While Ishmael and Isaac coexisted, neither received the inheritance. And so, the bond one's got to be cast out. In order for Isaac to receive his inheritance, it was necessary to cast out Ishmael. And when Yahweh destroyed Israel in AD 70, the church received her inheritance. Now these Jews in our text in John, they thought of themselves as occupying a privilege, a secure position as sons of in God's household. Because they were Abraham's descendants. Well, Yeshua now informed them they're not sons, they're slaves. The implication was they didn't enjoy a secure position at all. They're going to lose their position. That's what he's telling them. Now listen to Matthew 8, 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to be the people at the table. There's going to be people sitting at that table with Abraham. But he says, it's not going to be you. They'll be the sons of Abraham by faith, according to Galatians 3. He says, the son does remain forever. So the slaves, they get kicked out. The sons are there. They're there forever. Now, the son in this context is Christ himself. The Greek word for son here is hoios, always used by Lazarus for Yeshua. Believers are ta tekna tau theo, children of God. So who is the son who remains forever? It's Yeshua, the true sperma of Abraham. And guess what? All who trust him, right? For you are all Sons of God through faith in Christ Yeshua. That was a problem. They didn't trust Him. They didn't believe. Their sin was unbelief. And so they're not going to be children. They're slaves. They're going to be cast out. A slave had no permanent place in the family. A slave could be sold at any moment. But a son's very different. His status as a son is permanent. Permanent. And we're sons of God. 
through faith in Yeshua. So if the Son makes you free, he says, you'll be free indeed. Now, the if here is a third class conditional sentence. Maybe he will and maybe he won't. The Son of God, like the illustration of the slave owner, has the authority to liberate the slaves. In this case, spiritual slaves from the bondage of sin and its consequences. If the Son makes you free, you're really going to be free. See, we can't end this slavery on our own. There needs to be a deliverer. Yeshua has already identified Himself as the Son and told His listeners what the Son would do. In verse 28, He had clearly referred to the death. He would die on the cross just six months from this point in Jerusalem where He would be lifted up to die. Now, as we look at verses 37 and 38, they begin a transition to the next section. And the implication is that Yeshua's words and actions demonstrate who His Father is. And likewise, the words and actions of the Jews reveal who their father is. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. So they were physically. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So he acknowledges the Jews listening to him were physical descendants, but only at the physical level. How different from the actions of Abraham were the actions of these Jews. He says, you are Abraham's descendant, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Abraham wouldn't do that. What, ha- what did Abraham do when God showed up to him with a couple of angels? He was very hospital. He fixed him a meal, sat down, had a meal with them. You don't do that. You're just you're looking to kill me. Abraham wouldn't do that. The reason they reject and seek to kill Yeshua is, he says, because my word has no place in you. Now, the word translated here is has no place. is one word in the Greek. It's horeo. And it's an interesting word. It was used of growing a plant. It was also used of flowing water. It was used of a man's investment growing. So he's saying, my word makes no headway in you. My word has no place in you. The investment is not growing. The plant's not growing. The water's not flowing. It's clear from this that our Lord regards them as unreceptive to the things He's saying. Again, the problem is receiving or not receiving the gospel. You're just deaf. You don't get it. You don't hear it. My word's not making any place in you because you're a slave. You're a slave. He says, I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Now, The things which I have seen is a perfect active indicative which relates to Yeshua's pre-existence and current fellowship with the Father. At least seven times in this passage, Yeshua points to the fact that He is from the Father and speaks on the authority of the Father. He is going to the Father that He does nothing on His own. He claims, in other words, that His authority is not owing to any human origin. It's owing to His relationship with God. The things I have seen with my Father. He just keeps stressing this. I came from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. I am of my Father. And then He says to them, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. Now we know that Yeshua's Father is Yahweh. Who is He suggesting is their Father? Well, if you drop down to verse 44, He makes it kind of clear. He says, you are of your Father, the devil. And we'll look at the rest of that next time and get into what exactly does this mean that they are they are of their father, the devil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word, Lord.
for the opportunity to look at this text. Father, I pray that you'd help us as believers to understand the significance of being a son. That the son is in the house forever. The son has been set free. He's been liberated from the bondage of sin and death. And the son is set free because of the actions of Yeshua. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for our election, for our calling, for being made one with Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we are literally the seed of Abraham and inherit all the promises through Christ our Lord. Amen.